Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. It's Wednesday 25th of August and I'm your host Ella. Um, so it's just me behind the studio mics this morning, um, but we do have Claudia set up at home, so we're going to dial her in later on in the show. And Alice is off getting her second jab, so a worthy excuse, uh, but we're also going to revisit a segment from her from earlier this month. And I've got Gab, our trusty content manager, behind the scenes, so you're in safe hands this morning. Now I'll run through what we've got planned. Um, so first up, we're going to take a listen to a segment from 3CR's Radioactive show. Michaela spoke with Marie Leroy about some recent activities in the campaign to stop Adani's Carmichael mine, which is currently under construction on the Wangan and Jagalingu country in the Galilee Basin, and the mine would become one of Australia's largest coal mines if allowed to continue. Then later on, we're going to listen to Alice's segment on Long COVID. Alice spoke with Claire Hasty from the Long COVID support group in the UK about research into Long COVID and the road forward. Then at just after 7.30, I'm going to be speaking with Dean Lim from 3CR's Behind Closed Doors, and we're going to chat about a couple of big issues that are facing the sex work community at the moment. So one of those is OnlyFans, the content the content subscription service, um, which is favoured by a lot of sex workers, has recently announced it'll be banning sexually explicit content. And then afterwards, we're going to chat about the bill which is planned to decriminalise sex work. Then just before eight, we're going to have Claudia dialing in. Uh, she'll be speaking with Professor Brett Hayes from the University of New South Wales about the effects of lockdown on memory and cognitive capacity. And we'll finish up with something lighter. Uh, we're going to hear some poetry. August has been National Poetry Month. Um, so we're going to hear from the organisers as why a dedicated poetry event is long overdue. And we're going to hear three readings from poets who have contributed. And just before we get started today, a reminder to listeners to go ahead and get vaccinated. Um, there is a vaccination blitz on at the moment for anyone who works in aged care or the disability sector. Uh, so you can make a priority appointment or even just turn up and skip the queue. Uh, just make sure you bring some ID showing the sector you work in. So a work ID, even a payslip or a letter from your employer. All right. Um, so before we get to our interviews, I'm going to start off with a song. This is Dion Warwick with You're Gonna Need Me. Yeah! 
And that was Dion Warwick with You're Gonna Need Me. And now we're going to hear from Michaela from 3CR's Radioactive show. So Michaela spoke with Marie Leroy about some recent activities in the campaign to stop Adani's coal mine. Marie, can you tell us how you got involved with the campaign around Adani? Yeah, so I became involved with, I'm involved with a number of the different groups, but initially I got involved with Galilee Blockade, probably, well, when the the group first started, which I think is about four years ago now, I really lose count. It was at the time when Adani was starting to ramp up his, you know, getting the mine started, and it seemed as though, uh, despite all of the evidence that it was a really bad idea, it just kept progressing and progressing, and there was talk about giving them money from the Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund. You know, they were going to give them a billion-dollar loan, and it was just getting ridiculous and there were a number of us getting quite desperate and then at that time one of my friends who was um, Ben Penning who was running at that time for uh, a mayoral position in the Brisbane City Council elections and he decided to start up Galilee Blockade with a view to non-violent direct action and that's really when it started and uh, we've been going ever since just solidly and slowly making progress, but unfortunately, you know, the money are still winning at this point. Yes, it's hard to believe. I remember when the project was first proposed, we're like, oh, there's no way this is going to get the go-ahead, but obviously there's still a lot of work to be done. Tell us about the action that you had at the Queensland State Government building earlier this week. Yes, so this was a, an additional visit to them. We, we were there actually last week and we have, of course, visited them in the past. But essentially what's happened is that since 2017, Adani have violated 13 times a number of their different environmental uh, requirements. They've breached their rules. They've received a couple of poultry um, fines as a result of that. They've even had a criminal conviction for falsifying reports. But every single time they make a breach, they, as I say, they, they get a little slap on the wrist. And there are some breaches that still haven't been investigated properly that are being highlighted by people in the community who, you know, if we look at the Mackay Conservation Group, who have turned up this last breach. And the government's just simply not doing the job that they have promised they would do which is to investigate breaches and to make sure that Adani (laughs) pays for them, but they don't. So it's ongoing and really we're just trying to highlight with the Queensland Government that they do have a duty, they've stated they had a duty, but they're simply not living up to what they've said they were going to do. Describe a little bit about what you did and what was the results from the, the action? Well, last week we turned up and we had a letter for them and we wanted to have a meeting with the minister to put out a stock work order on the site because they're still, you know, breaching their requirements and nothing is happening. They're still allowed to continue to work despite the fact that they are, in fact, causing significant damage to the environment, uh, which is against their environmental plans. We weren't able to secure a meeting with the minister, not surprisingly. We, they sent down some, sort of the 2IC and uh, some other people in the department 
who very disturbingly didn't even know about the IPCC report that had been released that Monday, that week. They weren't even aware of what it was, which was very concerning. But they said that they had a draft letter that had been prepared and was ready for sign-off by the Minister and we would see a copy of it soon, which was interesting because they didn't have our contact details and we don't know who they were sending it to. We presume it was the Mackay Conservation Group. But So anyway, we haven't seen a response to that from last week, so we decided to visit them again and kind of ramp up the pressure. And because, obviously, the meeting achieved nothing... Our demand this time was very clearly just simply to put out, to to do a stop work order on the site. Um, We were there for quite some time. We had a loudspeaker. We read out what the breaches had been multiple times. And um, eventually protesters were um, let out by police. But again, there were no no arrests. And also uh, we got absolutely no response from the government whatsoever, and we're still waiting on the response that we were supposed to have gotten a week ago. The latest IPCC report really confirms the urgency for shutting Mm. down projects like this and the urgency to act. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges for people in these times of COVID with various parts of the country in lockdown and also the heavier restrictions that uh, have been brought in by various state and, and federal governments around activism. What is your feeling as somebody who's obviously involved in direct action? Well, yeah, so we, we're very conscious of the COVID restrictions and we always comply with whatever the restrictions are at that time. Uh, we're very fortunate here in Queensland. Um, at the moment because we seem to have done what Gladys can't do, which is um, stamped out Delta at this point in time. And so our restrictions are quite light. We have mask wearing outdoors and indoors. And, of course, we just ensure that everybody is wearing masks when we do an action. We um, very, very strongly um, adhere to the social distancing. So, you know, we were very, very aware of the, the COVID restrictions and made sure that that, is part, that gets incorporated in our actions. So we certainly don't um, try and break any of those rules. Um, you know, we are doing non-violent direct action. So we're doing what we can within the, the realms of the law, which is very clear that we are, given that, you know, we've been at 1 William Street two weeks in a row now and... We're really just being monitored. The, the, the government is very clear that we're allowed to make our statement, and this is, I guess, where it starts to fall down and where people get frustrated, is they're letting us make our statement, but because we're doing it within, within the law, they won't do anything. They don't actually pay any attention. They're not, whether they're listening or not, I don't know. So we need more people to be involved. Certainly in Queensland, that's very viable very possible simply because we're not in the same state of COVID that New South Wales is, for example, or, you know, the, the, the situation that Melbourne seems to be in as well at the moment. For people listening in other parts of the country, what support and campaign work could they be doing at this time? If they follow the Stop Adani Network on Facebook, 
there is actually an event that they can join online on Monday, um, which is a an event to give support to the Wangan and uh, Jagalingu people who are on country. At the moment, it looks as though they're going to have to step up a little bit, and so there is an action, the Stopadani action, and it's it's available on on Facebook. But we are looking for people who aren't able to get out physically to show solidarity and really make it very clear that the Australian people are not going to stand for these companies to constantly just keep moving forward whilst they're breaking all of the environmental regulations. Yeah. So you're working closely with the Wangan and Jagalingu traditional owners? Yep, absolutely. So um, there are there will be some things happening, no doubt, along those lines, um, but we're working very closely with the traditional owners. And we're kind of a subgroup of Stopadani, if you like. As you probably know, there are many groups around the country who are trying to stop this terrible mine from going ahead. But they're all we're all kind of liaising with each other, so we're trying to work in synchronisation so that we're... We have the same end goal, but we're attacking it from different from different angles. Yeah, fantastic. And finally, is there any other projects or campaign work that you wanted to let our, our listeners know about? Well, there are continual campaigns against financial organisations. So if you get to, onto market forces, for example... Uh, they've got a number of different campaigns in regards to stopping financing of these projects. Um, in addition, there are, again, back on the Stop Adani uh, Facebook page and the website, you will be able to also see online campaigns for um, against HSBC, for example, or the NAB, these companies who are saying they're taking action, but they really are not. So the State Bank of India campaign is still ongoing, um, and that is a, a billion-dollar loan that was supposed to have been given to Adani back in January this year. Uh, it still hasn't. So, and that's been largely due to the push by people here in Australia as well as um, other parts of the world and also in largely in India. So those campaigns are ongoing and they can all be done from home. So we need people to right to HSBC and to the NAB and to these companies that are still continuing to finance these coal mines. Great. Well, thank you so much, Marie, for joining us on the show today. No problem. Thank you. That was Marie Leroy. As she described, there's a number of actions that can be taken to stop Adani's Carmichael coal mine from continuing to be constructed. For the divestment campaigns, you can go to marketforces.org.au. Also, across the last week, we've seen the frontline action on coal activists stopping works on Adani's rail corridor. And you can connect with them at frontlineaction.org. There is stopadani.com and also the Galilee blockade that you can connect with on social media and most importantly get behind the Wangan and Jagalingu and you can join the rally respect Wangan and Jagalingu human rights it's on Monday the 30th of August 
at 9.30am at the Queensland Parliament for those in Mianjin, Brisbane and for everyone else at 6.30pm online. That's on the evening of Monday the 30th of August. You're listening to 3CR and a big thank you to the Radioactive Show for sharing that segment with us this morning. And next up, we're going to be looking at long COVID. Our understanding of long COVID is very small and people who are experiencing long COVID in Australia and on a global level are barely supported by the social care currently in place. So Claire Hasty is a member of Long COVID Support Group. And today, Alice is talking to Claire about her experience with long COVID the research that's taking place to understand long COVID and what needs to be done. Alice starts by asking Claire what long COVID looks like in the UK, but most importantly, on a global level. The actual symptoms and the impact, doesn't matter where you're from, um, they can be enormously debilitating. Um, a study was published today in the UK, but from an international group of um, researchers who are actually people living with long COVID. Actually, most of them are based in the US. And that shows that over 200 symptoms um, have been experienced by patients. Um, And at the time of doing the survey, there were seven people who had been ill seven months, and um, almost 70% of them were unable to work either at all or to their previous capacity. So it's changing people's lives. Um, In the UK, The government is starting to put in place help. So over the last few months, we've had clinics in England only. So if you're in Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland, you don't have access. But actually, we need research to catch up. So those clinics don't actually really know how to help patients. So we're largely abandoned, frankly. Um, And people are in a lot of pain. As I mentioned, they're losing their livelihoods, relationships are breaking down. So it really is life-changing and it can affect people of all ages, including children. And we have have a Facebook group with 42,000 members in 100 countries, including several hundred Australians. Um, And we have a sister group, Long COVID Kids. So no matter what age or how healthy and fit and active you, you, you are and how good your diet is, that's no protection. In our group, we have a Commonwealth Games athlete, we have several marathon runners, and people who are really highly active. So, yeah, it doesn't matter how tough and determined and fit you are, it can still floor you. And what are the type of symptoms that we're seeing with long COVID? So, um, as I mentioned, there have been over 200 that have been documented in a research paper that was published today, um, and that can affect anywhere in your body. So um, from hair loss to COVID toes and anywhere in between. But people tend to talk a lot about breathlessness and fatigue, which which are common symptoms. But actually, people don't talk as much um, as uh, about the cognitive effect. And that's actually, for lots of people, a reason that they can't work. I was unable to work for more than a year. And even though I had debilitating physical symptoms, I'm lucky to have a job that I can do from home and desk-based. So it wasn't the physical symptoms as much as the cognitive ones that have been the barrier. I was um, well, I remain unable to concentrate, um, to absorb and retain information. And some people struggle to find words. Um, so, yeah, it really can affect anywhere. I mean, researchers are hopefully working very hard on this. Um, we know that the NIH in the US 
has put 1.15 billion US dollars for researching long COVID, um, and the UK government has put 50 million pounds to that. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm sure people in other countries also are researching it. But as you say, it's such a widespread thing that the main thing that I believe we need to get to is to understand the mechanism. What is causing this? So there are various hypotheses, all of which might well be correct. So I think people are saying you may have one or all of some kind of autoimmune system um, that's been triggered. It may be that there's persistent virus sort of hidden away in your body in a kind of reservoir in people's gut and that kind of thing, because we know that some studies have found it even several months after infection. Um, and also there's, um, we know that there's organ damage, that the inflammation, the cytokine storm or, or, or other effects have caused. So there's another study called the cover scan study in the UK. They have a special type of MRI scan, which has picked up that 770% of people, mostly who had been who had not been hospitalized, had detectable damage to one or more of their organs. Um, we don't know whether that will persist or whether it will resolve over time. And I think that's one of the most difficult things with this, with long COVID, is that we don't know we don't know when we'll recover, whether we'll recover, and how fully we'll recover. Wow. And you mentioned before that it affects people socially as well and the relationships they have. And I'm sure as for family dynamics, it must be really hard as well. I think it's a huge strain on relationships um, because you know, your partner, and in my case, my children, become your carer so my my children actually have long covid also um so when i when we fell ill um my eldest son was 15 and my twin sons were 11 um, and they all also had long covid um, and in fact my now 12 year old twins still do have long covid they've been off school several days this week with their relapsing symptoms but thankfully my my now 17 year old he even though he had he had what you call COVID toes, where you're, it's something to do with your circulation and your blood vessels, they think, but your his toes went an alarming shade of dark purple, almost blackening um, for several months and blistered and peeled. Um, but he felt fine in himself, which is just as well, because I'm a single parent, so he had to learn to cook pretty sharpish. He was a classic teenage lad that I'd been trying to persuade to help me do around the house for years, but to no avail. But he had to step up because I was bedridden for almost three months. And even when I stopped being bedridden, I was largely bedridden and I would be able to pot around the house and that was about it. So he had to learn to cook, he had to cut the grass, he had to do all the laundry. My, we had friends and family um, shopping because I didn't even have the strength to even find my laptop, never mind switch it on and set up online deliveries at the time. Um, so, yeah, my kids had to grow up pretty quickly. And, and at that time, were you supported by the government in any way? Were you able to get some financial support and any kind of social support as well? In the UK, you don't get any extra financial help through long COVID. You get the usual social security type safety net that, that other people might get. So there are you know, disability benefits, but I think and for a lot of those, I think you have to probably be ill for 12 months or more. I mean, certainly that was the case, whether they're changing things now and whether people who've been ill. I know when people were applying, when they'd only, in inverted commas, been ill six months last summer, they were being turned down for those. But now that long COVID is more recognised in the UK, I don't, I don't know whether people are seeing more success 
whether they still have to wait till they've been ill for 12 months or more. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's incredibly, I mean, people, as I say, they're, they're, they're losing their livelihoods, they're having to sell their homes and their assets and, and rely on families to, to borrow money. Um, it's, it's incredibly stressful. Mm. And do you know if the symptoms are very different in children to adults? You mentioned that there's a different, you've got some different Facebook groups for support. Are the symptoms very different as well? So some of the symptoms overlap between adults and children, but they do, you know, there has tended to be a different presentation. And of course, with the, some of the new variants coming out, the symptoms in adults are presenting differently than what they have done in, in adults previously as well. So it's a bit of a moving feast. But um, my children are, 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 I think, more typical of some, not well, there's nothing typical about long COVID. I'm going to correct what I just said. <laughs> but, but children tend to get a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, so sickness, diarrhea, really painful cramps, bloating. Um, and they tend to also get a lot of, of rashes, which again, you know, adults get all of those things also um but so there is this kind of slightly different presentation with the delta variant um that, that's predominant now in the uk um i don't know what the difference is between adults and children so much but it's the symptoms tend to be like a summer cold or a um, or hay fever so a lot of you know in the uk the government has not done a great job at communicating what the symptoms are so i think a huge number of people um, are unwittingly spreading the virus thinking oh i've just got a sniffle it's just a bit of hay fever i'm just going to go into work i'm just going to send my kids into school um and, and cases are, are rising rapidly wow and i don't want to speculate or um mislead anybody either but do you know if um the vaccines can are they preventing long covid um it's a little bit early to say with the vaccines but we know that people who are double vaccinated are catching covid um the delta variant um really quite you know in great numbers in the uk so i think it reduces the the, the chances of you getting it and i think it reduces the chances of you transmitting it but it doesn't eliminate those so lots of people um, who are in hospital have been double vaccinated um and and we again it's it's a little bit early days but we there are there is evidence that people who've been double vaccinated and caught covid are developing long covid so you shouldn't get any false sense of, of security or complacency just because you've been vaccinated because the the variants are breaking through um and obviously while any population is partially vaccinated that apparently you know that causes that gives great conditions for more variants likely to emerge as well mm. and if you have long covid are you able to get the vaccine uh, yes indeed um so yeah i i got mine as soon as I possibly could. And in the UK, unlike some countries, um, children are not being vaccinated at the moment. We know that in places like US, Canada, in the various EU countries and Israel, children over the age of 12 uh, are being vaccinated, but not as yet in the UK. Um, but at my because my son, who was then 16, he's been my carer, so I was able to, um, to get him vaccinated because of that. You're listening to 3CR. This is Alice. I'm talking to Claire from the Long Covid Support Group.
and this group is a global support network on Facebook and online for people suffering with long COVID and that's at longcovid.org. My final question to Claire was how do we support the Long COVID support group and its global members including its hundreds of Australian members right here? I guess it's, that's really kind of you to offer. It's not really about supporting us so much as supporting people out there who may have long COVID. I think there's a huge amount of people who won't know that they have this. So, for example, I have a good friend who mentioned to me at various points over the weeks. At one point, she mentioned that she'd been checked out for arthritic hands, which she developed. She's in her early 40s. Um, and then in a separate conversation, she went, mm, you know, I always had a stomach of iron, but actually I've had diarrhea um, every single day for um almost a year now um, at the time of her telling me this, you know, ever since I had a nasty cough in March 2020, which was the real, the first wave in the UK. Mm. So, and she hadn't joined the dots and, and realised actually diarrhoea, arthritic hands, nasty cough, and she's and she knows now that she actually has long COVID. So I think there's huge numbers of people that just don't realise what's going on arthritic pain is, is a case in point i know several people who kind of go oh i'm really stiff these days i can hardly move and blah, blah, blah. and they don't connect that that could have anything to do with, with their illness and in fact even if you're asymptomatic at the acute phase you can develop long covid so there are people developing symptoms with never knowingly having been ill in the in the first instance so it's an incredibly difficult thing to pin down wow. but yeah anyone out there who is Things they may have long COVID. We have a website, longcovid.org, where we have resources on there, and there are links to our Facebook group, which is a global group. Um, anyone is welcome to join. It's a very warm community. We offer activities in there, such as chair yoga and opera breathing, and we have a choir, and we we have social zooms and all that kind of thing. So, you know, please, if anyone is is out there and needing some help, then then we're here. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Claire Hasty from the Long COVID Support Group. The group has run out of the UK, but their Facebook group is a global network for anyone experiencing long COVID. So if you'd like to learn more, uh, so you understand a little more about long COVID, head to their website, which is longcovid.org, and you'll find links to their Facebook groups. And that was longcovid.org. All right, and now I'm going to play Nabotcha do Sol from Arthur Barakai. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Dean Lim from Behind Closed Doors.
And that was Arthur Varakai. You're listening to 3CR's Wednesday Breakfast, and now I'm going to be speaking with Dean Lim from Behind Closed Doors, a 3CR show which provides a safe space to explore the world of sex work on air. And today we're going to be talking about a couple of big issues facing the sex work community at the moment, which I'm keen to hear more about. Uh, The first is OnlyFans, a content subscription platform favoured by many sex workers, which has recently announced it'll be banning sexually explicit content. And I'm also keen to chat about a bill to decriminalise sex work, which will be legislated in Victorian Parliament by the end of the year. And just a heads up to listeners, in this segment we will be talking about sex and sex work, nothing particularly explicit, but we will acknowledge the existence of it. All right, and so let's chat to Dean and hear more. Good morning, Dean. Good morning, everyone. Hi. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Now, as I was saying, OnlyFans, which is a content subscription platform, has recently announced they're going to be banning sexually explicit content. Um, So I wanted to start off by asking you to tell listeners a little more about the platform. Well, it's an online platform where people can... uh, show and have uh, explicit content. So it's basically an upgraded version of webcamming. And given that uh, in this day and age, a lot of us are now online, we use smartphones, uh, the a way to access uh, adult material is now online. So gone are the days where you have physical premises, uh, where you have magazines, everything is basically online. So. Uh, OnlyFans was uh, a business that was predominantly popularised because of sex workers. Um, and be- uh, because of COVID, uh, the entire world is seeking entertainment uh, through online services. So you have things like, you know, your general TV and entertainment platforms like Netflix, for example. You also have adult content. And one of the most popular adult content providers was OnlyFans. And because of the popularity of OnlyFans, uh, a lot of celebrities, um, social media influencers also use that platform to make money, which is understandable, you know, in the in times of COVID, how do you make um, money? How do you increase your, your business? How do you increase your your standing in the in your community? If you can't go to a bricks and mortar for building or if you can't meet people face to face, what do you do? Uh, the problem with OnlyFans now is that the people behind that business want to take it to another level. They are seeking investors and part of those, the majority of investors that they've got now want it to be um, uh, less uh, risque, uh, and therefore they've got to change their their main business practice, uh, which is now going to put a lot of people out of a job. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, it's um, had a huge boom in the last year um, mm. when people haven't been able to get out and have been affected by the pandemic. And as you said, the platform is used by a whole range of performers, but it is primarily sex workers and um, people producing sexual content. Um, what's the motivation behind this? So I, I, I did a really quick sort of snap poll, and this is my own very anecdotal um, 
evidence, I guess, and it's primarily from my part of the community, which is the male-to-male worker community. Um, the, the, the people that I've spoken to have said that the reason why they've gone to OnlyFans was uh, to generate income, uh, especially in times of COVID lockdown where when, you know, we, we can't work. We can't, you know, we can't travel more than five kilometres from our homes, um, you know, and also to have a, another form, uh, another stream of revenue, um, which is going online. Um, it has been quite successful for them in that they've been able to uh, create content um, in the safety of their own home uh, and develop a, a business model from that. Yeah, and it's one of the few platforms out there with a model that does um, pay content uh, makers directly for the content they're producing, right? Yes, correct. So it's it's a way where people are in control of their uh, business and they get paid. They're also be able to uh, create whatever content they want um, and, and find a, a, a niche or a place for them in, in in an online um, way. And this re- recent decision to ban sexually explicit content, um, is that all down to banks and financial institutions uh, being more conservative or is it also to do with um, the laws in the US around sex work and the conflation it, with sex trafficking? It, it looks like a, a combination of all of the above. The, the, I guess the precedent for that was actually Pornhub so Pornhub is another uh, platform that uh, has explicit content and it was actually MasterCard and Visa behind Pornhub that actually made them uh, quite recently go through and change a lot of the way they did their business and um, in, a, in a very quick uh, way, um, sorry, short, short explanation, um, the, the performers on Pornhub had to be verified, so it changed the way they did business. Very much the same way that now OnlyFans are being affected in that the, the organisations behind OnlyFans who are making these changes or affecting these changes are not necessarily the banks themselves, but the financial um, services and the financial providers. So it, it's... It's a slightly different um, organisation behind that, but still the, the, the attitude is pretty much the same, which is you know, uh, very sex negative. Um, it's going to greatly affect the people that have actually built the business up, which are the sex workers and people who are extremely marginalised uh, and people who, for the first time in a long time, were able to have autonomy over their business. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we spoke to you a few months ago on the Wednesday Breakfast Show about the e-safety bill in Australia. And this is really, I think, proving the point of why it is so important to have legislation which um, doesn't financially discriminate sex workers because they're the it's the content producers who end up being affected by these laws. That's right. That's right. And and it's it's really fascinating to see that from a very small uh, part of the community that has actually developed and uh, developed a, a business into a multi-billion dollar industry, that they're actually the ones that are mostly greatly, are greatly affected. Um, and, and, the, and the interesting attitude is that the, the, a lot of the performers, a lot of the content creators are actually going to be moving on to other platforms, other websites, other ways of making money. It's just really interesting that, you know, 
in this digitalized you know, society we live in, the, the kind of, um, I, I guess, sex, sexual conservatism is just so rife, it's so dominant. Yeah, absolutely, and it's pretty shocking when this is the content that's made OnlyFans successful and um, a well-known name, and now it's the content that's being banned. Mm, exactly. And so are there? Make, um, it doesn't make sense. No, it's bizarre. <laughs> and are there other platforms out there? What alternatives do sex workers have? Oh, there's there's so many, and I think that's the uh, the beauty of it in that. Uh, Sex workers and adult content creators have uh, a choice as to uh, the platforms they will, that, that they will go to. The issue that I see in the future is that we'll still ha- we might have a similar situation where, say, most people move to, say, platform B. So they've gone from platform A to platform B. The same thing might happen again. They boost the um, the profile of platform B, they boost the uh, profitability, and yet who's to say that it won't happen again where platform B will say, well, we want to expand our business model, we want to invite in financial institutions, financial services who are very conservative. That, that could happen again. Yeah, absolutely, and it's not just a matter of um, moving straight over to these alternative platforms, even though it's great they are there. It, it takes people time to build up a fan base and a following, um, so it's a lot of work people have put in that, yeah, um, they lose when things like this happen. Exactly. It's a business, and the ones who have been very, very successful have treated it like a business and work every day to create content. Yeah, yeah, that takes time. Mm. All right. And yeah, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about this morning is the bill which is seeking to decriminalise sex work in Victoria. Um, Now, a lot of people have been calling for this for a long time, um, but I think other people might wonder, oh, I thought sex work was already legal. Uh, So could you um, clarify the difference between legalising and decriminalising sex work to start? Sure. So in Victoria, we actually have a two-tier system of sex work. And what I mean by that is we have a legalised framework. And that means in order to be a legal sex worker, you have to register, you have to have a, a registration number, and with that comes various rules. So if you are a legal sex worker in Victoria, you are not allowed to work from home. You must work from the client's home or uh, in a hotel booked under their name. Um, there are a, a couple of exceptions, but that's just the general rules. Um, so that, that, that poses a lot of problems. Um, and the main one, you know, I would look at is just how do people work uh, autonomously? How do people work from the safety of their own home? Why do they need to go to a premises of someone, of a stranger's premises where they don't know that person at all? Um, so having decriminalisation, it doesn't solve everything, but it is um, the start of uh, a better um, framework for sex workers to work in. So I mean things like very simple changes to anti-discrimination laws, which will put in place things like uh, not discriminating people about their profession or occupation. So at the moment, sex workers can be discriminated against even in terms of, say, banking. So 
anecdotally, again, I've heard stories of sex workers who have bank accounts. Um, and even in Victoria, where they have worked legally, if they are registered, they have had their um, bank accounts and their the various financial services attached to that. So, say, a business bank account, where they've had FPOS facilities, they've had those accounts closed. And, yeah. again, that doesn't make sense. If you're supposedly working within the legalised framework of Victoria, you're working with a business bank account, why would a bank or financial institution close your account? They could just do whatever they want, and they do it, you know, pretty much overnight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've heard lots of stories of, yeah, people having their bank accounts closed, being unable to access a home loan or life insurance because you're stigmatised by this um, system we have in place. Yeah, that's um, right. And so how can we, how could anyone exist in a society where, number one, you need a bank you need a bank account, number two, you need to pay your bills, your rent or your mortgage, you have a mortgage, you have to have a roof over your head. How, how can you have even exist in that framework if you get discriminated against? Yeah. You, you, you can't, so you go underground, but then that poses a whole range of other issues and problems. Yeah, I was just going to say, then we end up with this really dangerous system where people don't have a recourse or are um, frightened to follow up when um, something does go wrong because they're aware they haven't been able to operate within these laws that don't seem to make sense. <laughs> That's right. It, it's, a t- it's a huge um, domino effect that negatively impacts on society in general, where you know, with decriminalisation, the attitude becomes, well, sex work, is work between consenting adults, it needs to be treated as a small business and as such we are happy to work and do operate within the framework of being a small business. And with that comes all the, the protections um, and laws already that we have for small business. There's a couple of things we need to tweak, of course, um, but that's how we should be seeing sex work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also going to make it a bit easier for sex workers to be their own boss, right? Because the current laws almost encourage uh, workers to work at a brothel. It's almost easier. Um, well, that, that's one way of doing it. Um, or just to completely work underground and, you know, not be uh, part of mainstream society. So, you know, what you were saying before about if something happens to you, you need to feel that you are protected um, within the law and to have that ability to, say, go to the police, um, you know, um, and to report crimes, uh, to go to the bank and say, well, you know, I've had an issue with a client and non-payment of services, um, you know, we need to sort some things out. So there's a few issues here that we can address, um, and it's, it's about putting together some, some really good laws and changing existing laws. Excellent. And yeah, the bill has come as a recommendation from Fiona Patton, right, who was commissioned to do a review into sex work. Yes, that's right. So and Fiona's done a great job um, yeah. Yeah, reviewing that for us all. Excellent. And when can we expect this will come into place and these changes will take effect? It's, it's going to be a, a, a couple of years. So it's, it's uh, looking at at least the next, within the next two years. So the, the first step is uh, the government's actually been seeking uh, submissions uh, from the general community um, via the Department of Justice. Uh, that's the first step. The second step is that uh, all of these recommendations are actually going to be uh, tabled into a bill 
and that's going to happen really, really soon. So we're looking over the next you know, couple of months. So because we're pretty much in the later half of the year now, it's it's going to happen pretty soon. So uh, by the end of the year, we'll we'll know more details. Excellent. All right, we'll keep our eyes on it. All right, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Dean. I'm afraid we're running out of time, but it's been great chatting to you. Thanks. Have a great day, everyone. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks. All right, that was Dean Lim from 3CR's Behind Closed Doors. And that was Ichiko Aoba with Porcelain. Thanks, Ella. I'm Claudia, and good morning to our listeners. 
This next segment is one we have been waiting for. We uh, had Professor Brett Hayes with us last week and unfortunately couldn't connect through for the interview. So uh, I believe there's been a little bit of interest through the week in discussions because he's going to be talking to us about the effects of lockdowns on our memories and cognitive ability. Professor Hayes is a cognitive psychologist from the University of New South Wales School of Psychology. And he's also the founding director of the Sydney Thinking and Reasoning Laboratory. Good morning, Professor Hayes. Good morning, Claudia. Lovely to have you with us. Now, before we begin, would you mind explaining what a cognitive psychologist is? Sure. So cognitive psychology and more generally cognitive science is the scientific study of mental processes. So we research how people um, remember things, how we make decisions and judgments, and uh, how we learn. So, uh, so yeah, basically the what most people would regard as thinking processes are the kinds of things that cognitive psychologists are interested in. So the new data that uh, you'll be talking about comes from studies in Scotland and Italy. What was happening there to prompt the investigation? And what so, were they seeking to find out? So you probably... Your listeners are probably familiar that uh, know that last year, both Italy and uh, parts of the UK and Scotland went through fairly serious lockdowns, a bit like what Sydney and Melbourne are going through now. And um, what the researchers were interested in finding out was, um, in addition to the pretty well-documented mental health impacts of lockdown, so we, we all kind of know, I think by now, that lockdown's not great for our mental health, uh, these researchers wanted to see if there were any further cognitive effects of lockdown, whether it actually impaired your memory, your judgment, decision-making and things like that. Um, and uh, there were some interesting findings from those studies. So um, the, in the Italian study, they, it was basically a very large survey of over 4,000 people. And they just asked people to report on their sort of everyday experiences. And they found during lockdown, and they found about 30% of people did report some kind of cognitive lapse that was a little unusual, something that they, they wouldn't normally do, like just you know, higher rates of forgetting where you put your uh, glasses, where you put your mobile phone, um, more attention uh, attention wandering and mind wandering. So kind of getting started on a, on a project or on, on a task and then your mind just sort of goes off and you find it hard to come back. Um, so that's interesting. So people definitely report uh, that they're... Uh, they're sometimes having these sort of cognitive issues during lockdown. Um, the Scottish study went a little bit further and actually gave people some computerised tests of cognition. So actual standardised tests of attention, memory and so on. Um, they delivered some online tests to people while they were in lockdown and then while they were coming out of lockdown. And they did find that people's performance on those tests during lockdown, during the worst parts of lockdown, um, whereas a little bit below what they uh, what they normally experienced. Um, the good news was, though there's a good news story there, that those effects did seem to be pretty temporary. So they tracked people's performance as they as uh, the uh, lockdown restrictions were gradually reduced, and and most people's performance returned back up to normal by the end of uh, by the time things were returning to normal uh, with regards to restrictions. Well, that is good news. Uh, so we've got something to look forward to when restrictions end. Um, can you take us through a little bit of the process of memory making? Because it's quite intriguing to understand why lockdown and what are the variables that uh, 
and conditions of lockdown that create this effect in our memory making? Mm, yeah, sure. So um, there's probably a couple of things at work when we uh, when we go into lockdown. There's a couple of ways that it affects our memory. Um, one is in terms of the role of, of context in memory. So one of the things we've known about human memory for quite some time is that when we're focusing on a task and trying to memorise something, whether it be, you know, trying to remember a piece of music or remember something for work, we're focused on that particular task at the time, but our brain's also encoding a lot more information. It's encoding sort of contextual information about where you are, what's happening around you at the time, who might be present. Um, and that contextual information can have a, a fairly big impact on memory. So we know, for example, we've known again for a long time that if you, you know, study for an exam in a particular context, um, then you are probably better at taking that exam if you go back into a room that's similar to the one you were studying on. And that's, a, that's kind of a demonstration of that big, that powerful effect of context on memory. Now, in lockdown, what's happened is that the context that um, is out there in our everyday um, lives, where we, you know, usually getting up in the morning, going to work, um, yeah, we meet different people at work, you know, we might, you know, spend, you know, go to the lunchroom at some point, go for a walk around the building. Um, the, ta the, 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 the everyday tasks are the same as what we might be doing if we're working from home, but the context which we're getting, that variable context, that distinctive context that we're getting um, as we move through the as we move through our everyday environment is now really no longer really there in lockdown. In lockdown, it's a bit more like Groundhog Day, where you know we're in the same room, in the same place every day. Uh, the context doesn't change, and what that means is, even though we can remember things, our, our memories become a bit less distinctive. So the days literally begin to blur into one another. So do you know? So I know I did that task, but was it Monday or was it last Friday? It's it's really hard to tag it because you don't have that extra contextual information. So that's definitely one of the things that's leading to this memory fog. And what are the things that we can do about it now that we mm. have that information? I mean, Victorians and yourself in Sydney are all in lockdown at the moment, um, feeling like one day is pretty much the same as the next. Are there things that we can learn from these studies and um, implement in our daily lives within the limitations of lockdown to, to help us keep uh, fresh in our minds? Yeah, I think there are some clues uh, to the, in this research that we, we probably can uh, can try out uh, strategies in, uh, in, you know, in our lockdown lives. So I think one of the important things with regards to this memory fog is kind of getting the balance right between routine and variety on the everyday of life. So on the one hand, we know um, Routine is important uh, in in lockdown. So you know, um, lots of people would be telling us that uh, you know, making sure you kind of keep up, you know, regular going to bedtime and getting up time is kind of useful. Um, you know, just because it's lockdown, you do you know don't, you don't want to stay up all night or uh, uh, and sleep during the day. So so certain kinds of routine are important, but within those kind of general routine constraints. The, the, the memory fog work suggests that we should try where we can to inject a little bit of daily variety. So, you know, if you, um, so hopefully we're all trying to do a little bit of exercise each day, but maybe vary the, the, the type of exercise on each day. So Monday, you know, if you can get out and um, walk, uh, you know, in one, you know, to one particular uh, suburb, then that's, that's what you do. Um, or if you're, you're stuck at home, um, you 
try you know, one kind of exercise, but on Tuesday, let's try something a little different. Um, so to break and uh, likewise, you know, if you've got your kind of recreation time organized in the evenings, um, maybe not such a good idea just to, to binge, you know, uh, your streaming, your streaming, your favorite stream programs every night. I mean, have, <laughs> have a binge night by all means, but maybe try and vary, uh, to vary up the routine a little bit from day to day. So the days don't become just these, these repetitions of one another. They, they become a bit more distinctive and hence a bit more memorable. So trying to change the uh, context in which mm. you're doing something, but also the type of activity as well, varying that from day to day. Yeah, to the extent that you can, yes. Well, that sounds uh, very helpful. And I believe that uh, you've taken up some ballroom dancing yourself <laughs> during this period. Yes, yes. A previous reporter got that out of me. Yes, um, yes. We, uh, my wife and I were, were trying to put some of these uh, strategies into practice of trying to vary up the routine. And um, we recall that, yes, we had a... a uh, a ballroom dancing DVD, actually an old DVD, gathering dust uh, in our wardrobe. And uh, uh, so we, we got that out of the wardrobe, got the DVD out of the wardrobe as well, which is also gathering dust. And we've sort of been um, uh, programming in some, uh, some ballroom dancing lessons every couple of days. Again, not every day, just, uh, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's uh, one of the, the, the new um, elements we've included in our routine. Well, it seems like your mind's working uh, quite well. So maybe that's a tip for, for any other ballroom dancers that have <laughs> got their shoes in the closet and uh, to get out their DVDs. Thank you very much for talking with us this morning. That was Professor Hayes from the Department of Psychology at the University of New South Wales, talking about the way in which memory and cognitive capacity can be affected by lockdowns. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you very much. We're now going to wrap up the show with a celebration of poetry. August is Poetry Month, the first time Australia has seen a whole month dedicated to the art form and encouraging newcomers to have a go. We're going to hear from the team at Red Room Poetry who have created the program as well as listen to some of the poets sharing their work. And there's still a whole seven days of National Poetry Month left to go. So uh, you can head on to Red Room's website, redroompoetry.org, to check out what the program holds. But I'll hand over now to the, the team at Red Room and Alice, who's going to share this segment. I'm Alice Allen, a poet from Melbourne. I'll be talking with the Red Room team Annie Tafew, David Stavanger and Tamron Bennett about what Poetry Month is and why it matters. You'll also hear from three Poetry Month ambassadors throughout the episode, Grace Tame, Omar Saker and Yasmin Abdelmajid. I'd love to hear about the role that poetry plays in each of your lives at the moment and what poetry means to each of you. I mean, poetry is sort of like, uh, it shapes me to a large degree yeah, it's my main practice. It's one of my great loves, but it's also my predominant form of employment, which is also an extension of my practice. So, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty fundamental to my my being, my daily existence. It's also something I need to get space from. But uh, I can't imagine myself or my life without poetry, which is both amazing and scary to say out loud. What about you, Annie? 
I feel like I'm in a relationship with poetry um, and sometimes I'm I'm the one that's um, writing the words and sometimes it just doesn't feel like I have a sense of what's going to come out of the pen. Yeah, it's not just poetry, it's people. So my connection and impact of poetry is poets. It's really significant. Cameron, did you want to add to this question as well? I guess what poetry means to me or is to me goes back to a way of seeing the world or experiencing the world and the poets that have influenced me most are those that live their poems. Um, It's not only the poems as they exist in language but in the lived form. So, yeah, words that are flowers, that are fruits, that are acts. I go back to that how our Uh, words become actions and how we make our words as poets uh, how we shape those and what what role poetry has to play in transforming our actions and what can happen from the mind into the world so yes it's a poetry is definitely lived experience for me I've had a little bit of a look at the poetry month web pages that have launched and there's a quote on there from the poet Sarah Holland Batt introducing poetry month and sarah writes that poetry changes lives in australia we have been slow to acknowledge or champion this fact we have no poet laureate and rarely is poetry publicly celebrated even by those who otherwise champion the arts a national poetry month is long overdue i'd love to hear what you all think about what is unique to poetry in the context of the country we know as australia and if you can speak a little maybe to other countries that have hosted a poetry month and what impact this kind of activity has had in those countries. Certainly in you know, living poetry in Australia, understanding the island that we are is also represented in the form and sometimes it's disconnection from other international conversations and poetic connections. So in looking at Poetry Month in Australia, what it could do, we also looked internationally and what what Poetry Months or Poetry Weeks, Poetry Days had done um, for poets and the profile of poetry in other countries like the US has uh, Poetry Month, it's 25 years old, New Zealand Poetry Day, UK Poetry Day. And in the absence of a Poet Laureate in Australia, what was the most participatory poetic vehicle we could create as an organisation and invite others into so that everybody has a voice or an opportunity to participate in poetry. That's why we thought about developing Poetry Month in this, in so-called Australia and what we could do with that participatory mode. I feel like at the moment what is poetry in so-called Australia is just an kind of under, underlying kind of foundation question that's really being interrogated in contemporary Australian poetry at the moment. And that's really exciting. And it's predominantly being led by emerge, an emerging wave of kind of First Nation voices. Uh, I know people call it sort of a renaissance. That's not true. It's just that this particular wave is uh, finding access, new, new, new ways to get published and being amplified uh, to a to a to a certain degree and I think poetry month sort of sits within that in that there's an there's an absence there about 
access who gets to write poetry beyond poets, who gets to read it, how's it read, who gets published, who gets to define what poetry is and how, how it's part of a sort of national discourse too. So that comes down to sort of underlying love I have is that, that poetry isn't just for poets. Um, and Poetry Month is about expanding that out. And it's a platform that, like Tamron said, I mean, it's 25 years in the States, 25 years in New Zealand. What You know, you see things like that lead to a man at Gordon uh, reading at the inauguration. And um, we don't have that sort of platform, natural platform or constructed platform. And I think it sort of uh, ties in well with what's shifting, what I see shifting in Australian poetry right now. Yeah, I think also building on there not being a platform, I think philosophically and culturally, I don't think there's an expectation that um, poetry has a platform, just generally. Um, and I think that's changing. I think there's an expectation where poets, you know, where are the poets' platforms? Traditionally, those platforms have been in communities. You know, poetry, the oral tradition that it is, it's been happening forever. It's just now that the platforms are changing, not just now, I guess it's been what social media been around for the last, what, 15 years, something like that. And I think with that rise, those platforms have been developing and those particularly First Nations voices are really leading leading the way for what poetry is and can be here in so-called Australia. And I just want to jump back in there very quickly and say also sort of destigmatizing the word, you know, access and accessibility, because it's only a dirty word if you already have it. And I think Poetry Month's really about opening up poetry for everyone everywhere across so-called Australia, not just in urban settings, not those who already have a relationship with poetry, those that have forgotten they have a relationship with poetry or that poetry is actually part of their everyday life. Hello, I'm Grace Tame, coming to you from Nipaluna on the island of Lichuita, reading my poem Hard Pressed for Poetry Month. The same eyes that fix on us were closed before. The same ears that eavesdrop were shut before. The hounds sniffing for blood now cared not when we were bleeding. All of them, once satisfied by tasteless comments, suddenly hungry for flesh, signalling absolute feelings on second-hand stories they haven't lived. And that's the rub, or lack thereof, a lack of feeling. The unscathed are most scathing, insensitive or just senseless. How funny it is that we call them the press. The untouched, the out of touch, poking and prodding and demanding we put on a show but expecting us to pay, expecting us to play, saying, be the perfect victim, the expert, the counsellor. Tell us about being exploited while we exploit you because you are ours. We need you. We own you. You are sensational. 
I think a question that might be in the minds of people listening to this is why has there been that absence in Australia? Why is it that New Zealand and the US have a 25-year history of Poetry Month and we don't? And what are the factors that are causing that to shift? David, you mentioned the idea of a renaissance in First Nations voices or an amplification. What What are some of the factors that jump into your head when you think about why we just haven't had something like this? I have an idea. I think it's around um, cultural identity. I think it's political and social and our identity is totally entwined with um, the mythology of the sportsman and the mythology of the Anzac. And those two um, motifs are really what Australian identity and cultural branding are embedded in. And that's a really um, Pakeha, really western perspective and i think that's changing i think yeah those mythologies are being broken down it's political i think for me yeah they're great points annie and i think there's been conversations for a long time about the need for a laureate or a figure like that um, and that that can really celebrate a single voice and in doing so can be politicized again who is that that voice uh, that gets a spotlight for that time. And so platforms like Poetry Month or Poetry Days, they broaden out the possibility for multiple voices. And that's why that's the, the platform that we're working towards because it's a very inclusive one uh, at this point in time. And that's what I think we need for poetry here in Australia. And then, you know, from that other things can emerge, but that's the foundation um, that lets a lot of people participate. And so, yeah, to your question about what that's done in, in other countries and, and how that's done, um, the conversations we've had with organisations behind that, it's also about who um, has the persistence, I guess, to, to lead that sort of push and conversations uh, or research with other countries where that's led by government. It, a poet laureate is appointed by government and that's not something that is seen here. Uh, and then the organisations and the resources behind that of who can um, pull together and harness enough energy for a platform like Poetry Month or Week or Day, um, that's the place that we find ourselves in now and just dipping our toe into that water and, yeah, hoping to bring community with us. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We've been hearing from the organisers of Poetry Month about the importance of poetry in Australia or the lack thereof. We're now going to hear some verse from Omar Saker. I'm Claudia. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Omar Seika and I am reading my poem, Context in a Broken Duplex. Tensions are escalating. Mow the grass down. Stretch past pain to find poetry. The way home. Pen the past to find home. Write even the rain. Israel, ghost nation, stains the orchards. 
is rage enough to sustain a whole nation? I dream of Palestine, free, alive. Pull the line toward life. Ask the dreamer who gave the order, who profits from slaughter, to make a border, make a slaughter. O history, O language, burst without love. With love only, gauge the story. I said with love. Listen, from the river to the sea. People riven from homeland, list in grief. Ten sons ululating. Mothers in the grass. For me, it's really about making poetry visible and accessible like any other art form that we celebrate in this country. The invisibility of poetry uh, is being shifted through this platform, uh, a month-long platform that really, yeah, puts a spotlight on poetry and who can create it, where, how, when, for all of us. It's not just poets who write poetry, I think, and that... There are a lot of people that have a deep love and connection to poetry outside of those of us practicing it uh, professionally as part of our uh, as part of our sort of like chosen art form. And I think a lot of the programming we've done uh, collectively with this for Poetry Month, some has come out of consultations uh, we did in different um, states. Uh, some has come out uh, extending extensions of existing sort of red room poetry threads, and some really just come from that underlying core foundation of making sure First Nation poetry is foregrounded, making sure marginalised voices, which is a very wide and at times contested phrase, but making sure those that are sort of un underrepresented historically are, are very much in a mix, making sure a lot of really well-known Australian poets are also there to sort of highlight them to non-poetry audiences. And then, so we did research. We didn't just go out to random uh, public figures, we made sure they had some in or connection or deep love of the form. Um, so that's kind of the collective foundation of, of the program, really. We don't really come philosophically, I think any of us, from a point of view of, you know, trying to pro always program the best, just a representation, a really representative sample of what Australian poetry is right now and what it could be. city that springs back to life after a winter of confinement. The way people press into terraces, drenched seals slipping gracelessly into wicker chairs. We said rain or shine and frankly it's been mostly rain. We're ravenous for what's on the menu and for all we've been missing. The joy of being out, seeing others, the reason we squeeze ourselves into these huge sprawling cities and tiny cramped apartments, that big city life. The lightness of laughter among friends who live in different homes. The pleasure of food prepared by someone else. Is that embarrassing of me to say to bourgeoisie to admit? 
I've been making the same three dishes since March 2020 and the taste of red lentils just doesn't hit like it used to and my mother lives too far away. I could tell you about moving, about wondering why I can never set roots, why I don't feel rootless but often feel restless, less concrete rose, more tumbleweed, why I'm always wondering what it would be like elsewhere. Not to say that here isn't enough, but there's so much in the elsewhere. All the letters should get attention, no matter where they are in the word. My mother across the sea suggests maybe it's in my DNA. Your father's family lives in Khartoum. They came from elsewhere. My mother's own mother didn't know where hers was from. Somehow it didn't matter. How did it not matter? Her fair skin and light eyes said elsewhere. Light eyes are not native to the Sahara, but despite what the Aussie border signs scream, non-native doesn't always mean pest. Pest is two letters and a whole world away from expat. Pay attention to all the letters, to where they are in the world. There's so much I could write poetry about. But what I can't seem to shake is that this poem is in English, Latin characters moving across my screen from left to right, that by twist of fate, I don't read poetry in the language of my family. And I'm not talking distant ancestors, my own mother and father who wax lyrical about the beauty of al-lughatil arabiyya. My first language, one that I have no mastery over. A linguistic orphan, I have lost my mother tongue. I am the weakest link. Am I the break in the chains? Not emancipation, but the gap between generations. Did I not try hard enough? Is it my fault? Anna, Le, my descendants will have no mother tongue, but instead inherit the master's tongue. How do I tell them I am the reason they have lost the turn of phrase, the deafness, the wit, the wisdom that goes back centuries, all hidden in plain sight? What if they resent me for it? What if I resent me for it? And what if I don't? That scares me more. There's so much I could write poetry about. That was Yasmin Abdel Majid with There's So Much I Could Write Poetry About. And before that, we heard an edited segment from Red Room Poetry, who are spearheading Australia's inaugural National Poetry Month. Poetry Month winds up at the end of August, so head to the website redroompoetry.org to find out more about the writing prompts, workshops and poetry events you can participate in over the next week. So that's redroompoetry.org. All right, and that's all we've got time for this morning. A big thank you to all our guests. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.